Hello and welcome. My name is Matt Peterson, and this is episode six of History on the Table. And we are finally back, and it feels good to be back uh, to get a chance to talk about war games and everything that's been going on over the last month and a half. I know back in April I had the now apparent lofty goal of two episodes in April, uh, but that just was not in the cards. But let's get into it. It's been a while. Let's uh, let's start talking about war games and and things going on. So since our since the last time uh, we had an episode, we uh, I put on or tried to put on a group uh, in Kansas City here to kind of start a monthly Kansas City gaming group, much like they've done with the first Minnesota and I think St. Louis has a monthly meetup. And it went okay. We had about five people show up throughout the day. I had no idea what to what to expect attendance-wise, and we're going to keep pushing it. Um, we only played... We played a multiplayer game of U.S. Civil War. I took the Union side and just couldn't push enough. Actually, what ended up happening is, as a Union player during our game, I kind of left Ohio and Indiana wide open, and they were able to counteract any advances I made by just driving up and uh, capturing one or two points. And then afterwards, <clears throat> another player and I, Rex, we played uh, a little bit of ASL Starter Kit 2. And that was that was the whole day. So this next week, or sorry, not this next week, the next game day, so May's game day will actually be June 1st, which is a Saturday at Tabletop Game and Hobby. If you're anywhere local to the area, you know, if it's, if it's within driving distance, come on down and uh, we'd be happy to have you. There's a thread over on Board Game Geek. I'll put a link in the show notes about the games that we want to play. And hopefully we'll just uh, continue to grow that and meet up once a month and, and play some games. So feel free to feel free to come join us. Another thing we need to talk about is Next WarCon. So last episode we announced Next WarCon here in Kansas City, which is happening June 7th through 9th, also at Tabletop. Uh, game and hobby here in Kansas City. Uh, Next War Con is full this year, so we're sold out for 2019. I think we got a great response and very quickly reached the number we wanted to hit, and then uh, said, "All right, we need to we need to cap it." So attendance is sold out for this year. As we go forward, we'll obviously uh, hope to grow that number. But Next War Con is happening. It should be a great time. And after uh, after that, I'm sure I'll be talking a little bit about Next War. My plan for that convention is actually just to play Next War India-Pakistan with the advanced rules um, throughout the convention. And uh, I think that'd be a, a really good time. I, I spent some time recently learning the game with a, another player. Uh, Justin is kind of taking me through everything step-by-step, step, and it's really helpful. I'm really liking the types of decisions you have to make in that game, um, how to allocate resources. It's really tough decisions. Um, you know, so far I've only really worked through, uh, strikes. So air and special forces, but just choosing how you want to allocate those resources in that game is very interesting. It's very tough decisions. And that's, I like tough decisions, uh, in my games. The last bit of news is, I went to Donkey Kong uh, earlier this month. It was the first weekend in May. 
and it was a five-day convention put on by the fine folks over at Advanced After Combat. And it's a whole five-day convention just dedicated to playing these monster, monster games. And then later on in the evening, we played some smaller stuff. Like, we played Root. Uh, we played Melee and Wizard. Uh, the Steve Jackson game. Just things like that. I played Fighting Formations one night. It was a really good time. Um, I'm going to talk about Beyond the Rhine a little bit later, which is the game I spent most of my time playing. We did a four-player game. Uh, myself and Paul took the uh, Allies. I took basically the U.S. Uh, he had a few U.S. forces, and he took the British uh, against Mike and Doug. And they split the they split the the German forces. Uh, it was all around a great time. If you're at all interested in something like that, I encourage you to go check out the Advanced After Combat Guild and podcast. It's a great group of guys. Uh, so go check out that podcast and uh, become a become a guild member. And I that convention was an absolute blast. Met a lot of great people. Met Rich Trapier from uh, Chance and Gaming podcast. I uh, got to talk to him, settled my debt after the Blues eliminated the Jets from the playoffs. Uh, yeah, it was just a really good time of, I say five days, but I didn't stick around too long on Sunday. So for me, it was just four days of pretty much nonstop wargaming. And it was really nice to be able to just dedicate four days to a monster game like that. Uh, there was a lot of large games like that being played. There were a couple smaller games um, that people played a, a few times like people played the uh, I think they played Austerlitz out of the Rising Eagles series they played one of those games I think it was Austerlitz S someone or a group was playing Goss they were doing um, well now I don't remember the title but it was essentially is D-Day there's four players playing that there's a group of people playing Federation and Empire which is the Star Trek game it was uh, really impressive it <laughs> federation empires sounds super fascinating but i just look at it and i just know that i would never get it played and give it the attention that it deserves because it has this whole from what i gather this whole economic feel to it of basically fitting out your fleet choosing the ships you want purchasing the ships you want and then just conducting a massive galactic war and so some people played that and then there was one other game going on, and I want to say it was the Seven Years' War, and the name's escaping me. And then, of course, we were playing Beyond the Rhine, and like I said, there was some smaller stuff going on throughout. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was really cool to be able to just dedicate four days to Beyond the Rhine. We did the Grand Campaign, uh, which is all four maps, and it's it's a monster. Uh, but as we'll talk about later, it was, a, it was a manageable monster, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, so that was Donkey Kong, uh, and that was up in St. Louis. That was my real first convention. We have something here in Kansas City called Recruits, but it's kind of just like a weekend deal held in a high school gym, and it's mainly miniature war games. There's not a whole lot of hex encounter war games, and there's a little bit of board game going on. And it's more geared toward getting new. That convention, Recruits, which is in Lee Summit, is geared towards getting younger high school or middle school age kids into the hobby and it's a good time but this is my first real all right I'm gonna travel and go spend five days and all I'm gonna do is play games and that was nice there was no you know there's no from what I gather at Gen Con or 
a massive convention like that, there's all these other distractions, which all sound great. Uh, but this was strictly dedicated to playing these massive games, and it was it was great. So I'm going to just breeze through the typical game on the shelf segment because it's been you know a month and a half since we last spoke and there's all kinds of stuff has come and gone but there are a few things I wanted to mention the first is I'm having a really good time I haven't played any of these yet but just exploring the world of tabletop role-playing I think I was turned on to it through fantasy trip and that kind of turned me on to tabletop RPG RPGs um, fantasy trip isn't really that uh, melee and wizard are these hex-based tactical role-playing games they're almost war games right but you can role play them in these uh fantasy trip it comes with these role-playing modules and so i started looking to it and i've been i've been looking at it, a lot of different rpg systems that i, I want to play and explore and i hope here in june 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 or july to run a kind of tailored pre-generated fear itself campaign which uses the gumshoe system and then i i would like to run the starter kit of fifth edition dungeons and dragons i've never done any kind of real role playing in the past but it's uh, it's something i want to explore and right, now let's go back to to war games so just a couple things i want to mention the first is i've been playing a little bit of great campaigns of the american civil war i'll talk about that here in a little bit and I wanted to grab a copy of Atlanta Czars before. So those games just become unavailable, and it, it's too bad. And I think it's just the nature of Multiman Publishing's print schedule. They just You just have to wait a long time before those games come back. And, you know, it's the same stuff with ASL modules, where they're going to churn out new things, or they're going to churn out a new copy of Beyond Valor before they go back and revisit something they did two years ago. So I'm thinking like Rising Sun, it'll be a while before Multi-Man Publishing um, comes back with a new printing of that, I assume. And so I wanted to get Atlanta Czars before that becomes too hard to find. So I grabbed a copy of that. And then the uh, the thing I'm really excited about is we have Pacific Theater ASL with ASL Starter Kit 4. That speaks for itself. I think I've made it clear I'm really enjoying playing ASL. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, but the Starter Kit 4 has shipped. I have my copy, and that is uh, the Starter Kit 4 PTO rules, which should be pretty interesting to explore. And speaking of Pacific, let's go to books on the shelf. So over the last month and a half, I've, I've read quite a few things. Um, one of the most enjoyable was I had an Audible credit left. I you know I asked for recommendations, what have you. And he said, check out With the Old Breed. That's with the old brood at Paleo Lou in Okinawa by Eugene Sledge. That is one of the books that the Pacific is based off of. Uh, the Pacific, of course, was HBO's follow-up miniseries to Band of Brothers, and yeah, with the old brood was just it was fantastic. So I, I really like audiobooks, and this is narrated by the actor who played Eugene Sledge in the Pacific. So the voice acting was great. And his writing was, it was, it was great all around. I don't know if there was anything super eye-opening to me. Uh, I will admit that the Pacific isn't an area of history I'm well-versed in at all. Um, so learning about the engagements was new, but it wasn't, it wasn't a history of the engagements, right? So this was, this was a memoir. 
Um, and so it's his experience on Peleliu and on Okinawa and the things he went through and he saw. And that was great. And it, I'd like to read more, get a broad history of of the Pacific Campaign just to understand it's hard to place it. It's hard to place, and he did an okay job of couching it. All right, here's where we're at during the war. And they, they set that up kind of in the introduction. But, you know, when did Peleliu and Okinawa occur? That type of thing, if, if that makes sense. And so what I'm reading now is actually doing a pretty good job. I assume it will do a pretty good job of helping me understand that. Because um, I'm only about a third of the way through, and that is Anthony Beaver's World War II, which is his. So he's done a lot of stuff like, well, if I look over at my shelf, I've got uh, Ardennes, D-Day, Stalingrad. So he has these books on these, you know, these specific topics in World War II, but he also has this broad entire World War II book. And so far, it's been great. It's very well written. It's kind of the perfect level of here's everything that went on without diving into too much detail and it flows nicely. So I think that will help me be able to place Sledge's experience more once I get to the back part of the book, right? So I'm a third of the way through the book, which is about a third of the way through through the war. And it's nice because it's it's highlighting or not highlighting, it's shedding light on areas of World War II that I wasn't as familiar with. So it's covering uh, British North Africa, and it's covering China, which I really didn't know much about. And then, so like Burma's involved, and it's good. It's very, very good. And even with, I, I am by no means a World War II expert, but I would say I've digested enough books and movies to, you know, have a, a decent understanding, right? I've watched World War II in color, you know, I, so I, I kind of. I took a Hitler class in, in uh, Hitler and World War II class in college, so I, I, you know, I have an understanding. But it's nice, even even with that understanding, to have a book like this to just go through everything because I, I don't think I've digested something like that. Even World War II in color didn't really hit on um, a lot of the topics that Beaver's hitting on. And then a couple just fantasy sci-fi things that I feel like I mentioned. I can't remember if. I know I've mentioned Raiera Revelations by Michael Sullivan before, but I wrapped up the last book of that. Air uh, of Navron is the last two books. Um, I, I know I mentioned it's it's three volumes with two books each. And I wrapped that series up. And again, I just really want to recommend it. It's really fun fantasy. It doesn't take itself too serious, but it's not it's not as light as, you know, like Discworld uh, or anything like that. Uh, but it's not it's not taxing to read. It's just an enjoyable, almost a Lo- Ocean's Eleven's fantasy. Uh, but it's it's good. So I highly recommend that. And then I reread Dune. So the the guy I was playing Operation Pegasus with, which I talked about before, and I'll talk about a little bit again. He mentioned that he was playing a copy, or he was playing Dune at his local game group. And uh, that led to this whole conversation about audiobooks, and we were sharing. Uh, Anthony and I were going back recommending uh, titles to read. He had said he never read Dune. I said, "Oh, the audiobook is like the credit and audible credit. The audiobook is a good use of a credit because it's so long, and there's so many voice actors." And 
recommending that to him as we were kind of going back and forth sparked my interest to reread Dune. Uh, so I, I knocked Dune out, and it was just as enjoyable as in high school when I read it. I'd forgotten a lot of things. But it was nice. Basically, as I drove from Kansas City to St. Louis, just three and a half, four hours, uh, I listened to Dune nonstop, and it was it was fantastic. So if you've never read Dune, I recommend it. All right, enough about books. Let's talk about some games. A couple quick things I want to mention that I enjoyed or am enjoying or that I, that I just feel like are worth talking about. One of them is Brave Little Belgium, which you may have seen recently uh, create a small Twitter shitstorm because Tom Vassell did an unboxing and he was not too kind. And people really got offended by that, which I, I just think is bizarre. Like, it's okay for Tom Vassell to voice his opinion about what he thinks about these components. Whether he's a war gamer or not, it doesn't matter. And we're not fooling anyone. I'm not going to give Brave Little Belgium an award for the best components. But it's a pretty darn good little game. And it plays super fast. And it forces tough decisions. So to be quick playing and simple is one thing. But to be quick playing and simple and force tough decisions is another thing. And so Brave Little Belgium, you have, it's a chip pull game. And basically you activate all the units in that, I'll say division, but I don't, I don't remember. It may be army skilled. I don't, I don't remember. And you move them around in combat. You just have, maybe you have some guys showing five die pips or four die pips, and you're trying to beat that number each time. And so you have all of the information there on the table you don't, you don't have to flip through charts or anything. You just look at the counter, and that's the number that you need to roll against. And there may be some modifiers to that based on some special events. But what happens is the German player is racing the clock because the turns may end faster than the German player wants. And the German player can basically commit atrocities to kind of speed things along. Um, so, oh, shit, the, uh, these, this whole group of guys didn't get activated, and I need to capture this fort this turn to open things up. And if I don't, I'm going to be way behind. So they can force that activation, and they basically roll a die to see did they commit an atrocity during that. And if they get enough, they lose the game. And so the German player kind of has this for, uh, press your luck going on. I think you could play this game in 30 minutes. If, if both players knew what they were doing. It's just easy, it's elegant, and it's nice. I think it would be a good... I know they are working on a Vassal module. To me, this is like a perfect Friday night. <clears throat> let's get let's get drunk. Beer and pretzels game, right? It's, it's not oozing historical flavor. The most... The historical flavor kind of comes through that pressure luck with the atrocities. I didn't get the feel that I was in Belgium... You know, during World War One, but that's okay. The game was still really good. I will say, following up on the Tom Vassell thing, one thing that does drive me nuts, and this is not a critique of Brave Little Belgium, and I don't even know if it's a critique of Hollenspiel or if it's a critique of Blue Panther, which is, I think it's Blue Panther, is the name of the company that prints Hollenspiel. Look, so you're paying 30, 40 bucks for one of these games. The counters are fantastic quality. The maps are usually pretty good. The boxes are, they do this weird thing where they kind of warp out. It's, it's pretty annoying. 
But the thing that drives me nuts is there is no counter storage in the box. There's not even little baggies, which I'm, I'm sure that drives up the printing costs, right? Even if it's just a small amount. And I'm assuming when you're on a print-on-demand, that's that's how you develop you pr- you produce your games. That you know the the profit margin is less if you're you know ordering 500 copies at once. Maybe I'm wrong. I have no idea how it works. This is all an assumption. But to me, it's like I open Agricola, and there's you know two sheets of counters, even if they're small sheets, and then you just dump them in the box or provide your own counter storage. It's not a make or break thing for me i'm still gonna buy the holland spiel games that sound interesting to me i'll still support their company it's just one of the, it's just a little thing that bugs me when i open it up it's like well shit what am i gonna do with all these counters so then i go pill for other games for baggies that i'm not using and as any board gamer i've got a i've got a drawer of baggies so it's not that big of inconvenience for me but you know let's just say i was new to the hobby and i i didn't have anything and i buy this it's like oh, cool i just dump all this crap in here or use sandwich bags i guess i don't know just a it's such a little thing it really doesn't matter but it's bugs me enough to mention but that's brave little belgium from holland spiel go check it out if you want like a a light but a light game but your decisions are meaningful and it's fun um i think that's the the important thing as well it's not only light it's also fun and it plays really well um it's kind of the thing going back to the the Kansas City game day. It's a game that I'm just going to throw in my bag. You know, it's like, oh, want to want to play something quick while we wait for someone to show up. It's a war game that does that. So it's not like a common thing. It's like before when I'd go to, you know, general board game nights, it's like, oh yeah, let's play this quick whatever game, you know, Seven Wonders Duel or Zombie Dice or something like that. I really think that you could get set up and go in Brave Little Belgium to 30 minutes or 45 minutes easily. And that's that's worth noting. So cool little game. I, I look forward to see what uh, what else comes from, from those designers. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Root, which is like the hottest war game of 2018, 2019. Uh, they just ran a Kickstarter for some new printings, um, a new expansion, which I, I initially backed, but I backed out of figuring that if, if the expansion is good enough, I'll be able to pick up afterwards at, at cool stuff or something like that uh yeah roots real roots really cool i see a lot of people make the coin connection and they're just really off base I, i'm sorry and i i probably made the same mistake too like when i would ask if someone wanted to play it i'd probably make the draw to coin but the only comparison i would make is that you have four asymmetric players with different goals but that's that's it that's the only comparison that i think you can draw to coin well that doesn't matter because uh root's a really fun game i think what's impressive to me is it's four people with four very different rules so with coin you have different capable uh options open to each player you know each faction can do different things but for the large part, the rules are very similar and, and kind of working the same. I understand, like, in Fire in the Lake, the U.S. have airstrikes. That, you know, that's completely different. But for the large part, a lot of those actions are are similar. Every faction that I've seen, which is just the four base in Root, are different. 
and it's nice that you can someone can pick up the rule book and just read the two pages on that faction and just get up and go and they may not master that faction um i played the vagabond the first time and i just butchered it so we played three games over donkey Kong weekend and I played, uh, I played Root, or I'm sorry, I played Vagabond, which is kind of like a solo adventure, kind of going on like quests by himself. I played the Woodland Alliance, which everyone that I've talked to about the game says is overpowered. And then um, I played the uh, the cats, which were kind of like, they're the bad guys. And then there was, uh, there's like a bird faction. But what's crazy is everyone feels so different. The cats are spreading and building like, almost like factories to be or uh, recruiting centers to be able to build out and bring on more guys and the woodland alliance are just trying to get in and basically overthrow the ruling party there but they all play differently and so the birds you know they're trying to invade and attack but they're engine building and you have to be able to run your entire engine you recruit move battle and the order may be different doesn't matter but let's say you have three recruit actions in your engine. You have to do all three recruit actions and you have to be able to do them as you've set them out in the spaces you set them out or the whole thing collapses. Everything feels really different. Everyone says, again, I say everyone, but the people I've talked to say the Woodland Alliance is overpowered. And I think they can be if you don't keep them in check. I think every character or every faction in this game has a chance of winning if people just let them be so as soon as that woodland alliance player starts to spread you got to crush it uh if you don't then if you get them a, if you give them a turn then you've given them too much time and that's that's kind of what it feels like so you're constantly watching the other three players i think what's really cool is if so i played this at the convention three times and so there was this nice little, not a like, like meta buildup of, first off, all of us were being told as we played, oh, you got to watch the Woodland Alliance. You better keep them in check. You better stop them or they're, they're going to win. So we were all teaming up on the Woodland Alliance, but it was interesting to see, I don't know, it just, this meta built up amongst us and it was, uh, wow, it was cool. Neat things happened in that game. I know people are all hissy pissy because it's it's not history. It, it's cats and, and bunnies, but it's a pretty cool game. Is it a war game? I don't know, and I don't I don't really care. But I think it fits in this podcast, and I think it's worth checking out, and I think it's a lot of fun. I was content with just getting root, uh, but now it's like, well, shit. Now I kind of want to see what these other factions look like, so I may be uh, tracking down some of those expansions. Okay, that's root. I talked about that longer than I wanted to. I was going to talk a little bit about Operation Pegasus. That's the 1980, no, yeah, 1980 Vietnam game with the helicopter mechanic that I'm really enjoying. Uh, I hope to get back to that soon. That's a game I want to spend a lot of time talking about. I think it's worth revisiting. I think there's really interesting mechanics at play. It's just... I've been so freaking busy since Donkey Kong. So my wife and I are expecting our first child, and then we're just getting the house ready and 
just tax season. It's been nuts. So, and the person I'm playing with that lives in Australia. And so Saturday mornings have been our time to play. But now, like, my Saturday mornings have just been, you know, with graduations, nursery painting, and all that stuff. Anyways, I'm just bitching, and that doesn't matter. But I will say that game is fantastic. If you're at all, if you're cool with working through a 39-year-old game, and you're at all interested in kind of helicopter air power in Vietnam, it's it's worth tracking down. I really think it is. If you don't want to track it down, I've mentioned this before, Judd Vance put a Vassal module out there, and you can buy a digital copy of, of the game um, off of, I think it's called War Game Vault or something like that. Uh, go check it out. Uh, you know, when you don't record for a month and a half, you have all kinds of topics to talk about. So let's talk about next. So fighting formations. Uh, you know, back when I started this podcast podcast earlier this year in January, I talked about wanting to go through and talk about my favorite tactical games. Or I wanted to play all the tactical games I owned and just kind of compare them. And so I spent some time playing fighting formations. I played Vassal before Donkey Kong, and then one night we played after. And... Here's what I'll say about fighting formations. The mechanics of the game are unique, they're fresh, and they're really interesting. So how the game works is you have this matrix of actions, or this matrix of initiative, basically. And you draw however many actions the scenario tells you to draw, and you roll a die. And let's say you roll a three, and the three is an attack command. So you put a little cube on attack, and then you you populate the rest of that. And as you pull off commands, let's say you pull off a a 7, which is draw an asset card, you shift the initiative 7 towards your opponent. And so as soon as it crosses that middle line, you give it's now your opponent's turn. And so there's this nice balance in decision-making aspect of, okay, I want to do this, this, and this, and I should do it in this order, to prevent the initiative going to my opponent until the last second. All of that is uh, really neat. I also really like how artillery works in that game. It's not abstracted. Well, the there are no artillery pieces, but how you conduct the fire missions isn't abstract. You're not just rolling on a table. Um, well, you are. But what's, what's cool to me, sorry, what's cool to me is you find heavy artillery... And how it strikes a tank is different than how it, you know, strikes an infantry. So you're you're comparing right heavy artillery against uh, a Panzer IV. This is what I'm looking for. And then, you know, it may also strike this uh, this German infantry with this morale rating. Okay, I need to compare it. So you're looking up each specific unit, and that's, you know, that's a little more time consuming if you're attacking if your artillery strike's going to attack six hexes and you have six different types of units in there. But I think that's that's cool. That's a level of detail that I really enjoy. Here's the deal, though. The game, I love the action selection. I love the artillery combat. I like the combat. And I like the dice. Oh, let me talk about the dice. Okay, so you start out with, I think you start out with like a D8. Maybe it's a D10. And your column shifts are dice shifts. So if you're at a D10 and you get a plus one, uh, you know, what may be a column shift in another game is now you go from a D10 to a D12 or, you know, D12 to D20. 
that is really cool. And so you can go all the way down to D6, or if you drop off below D6, you drop off and you don't make a make the roll. So the combat resolution is is neat. The gameplay itself, the tactical movement of your troops is not satisfying at all to me. One, even with the expansion that is the smaller scenarios. So there's fighting formations, and then they came out with an expansion. Um, so the whole deal with fighting formations is it's supposed to, each one is kind of supposed to focus on one formation during World War II, and maybe future conflicts. I don't know if it'll branch out past World War II or not. Um, so all of this is on the Großdeutschland Infantry Division. I, I think that's right. I could be wrong. Anyways. The expansion does all these smaller scenarios. It, it kind of overstays its welcome. Maybe I just need to spend some more time with it. I don't think it's... You know, as I, as I play through these tactical games, some of them are going to get cut from the, the collection. It's... Mechanics save it because it's so unique. But the feel... The satisfaction of advancing up and attacking positions in ASL is much more enjoyable. And I'd say the same about Band of Brothers. Uh, but I think Band of Brothers would leave my collection sooner and will leave my collection sooner because it feels so similar to ASL. Fighting formations have these wonderful mechanics, but it just hasn't come together yet. So I'm going to give it some time. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. And I'm trying to think of how to word that and piece that together to make it clear. Because there's so many things I like about this game. But I don't... I guess I don't enjoy what I'm, what I'm doing. I don't enjoy the action of advancing on these objectives. It just kind of feels stale. Or... I don't know. And I'm rambling a bit here, but I do want to applaud the design of this game because I think it's so fresh and so unique. Um, I need to spend some more time with it. That's what I'll say. But there's obviously it's um, obviously it's something that I, I enjoy. It's just how much do I enjoy it? All right, let's talk about SPQR. So I've, I finished up my game of SPQR. So what's interesting is... Uh, like I said, I've been I've been swamped at work, and we had a game a couple Fridays ago. So this guy and I have been playing, and he's been doing a wonderful job teaching me the system. It's a it's a system he really loves, and we had a game scheduled, and just kind of all day I just wasn't feeling it. I was like, I don't think SPQR is for me. But then I got as soon as we got fired up, and I think I started to see more of the game. I I was like, what am I what am I talking about? This is this is great. I think what I need to do is play this more before I talk about it in detail because I've only played through one scenario. Some some things I like about SPQR so far is the ability to kind of interrupt the order of play. Um, and it's a gamble. It's not a sure thing. And you may not be able to use that leader if you, if you fail. I really like the combat charts in that, that table. Uh, first, you check to see if there is superiority for other side just based off the type of engagement it's it's bloody lots of hits on both sides 
it's it's a lot of fun. So what I was thinking was when I was kind of soured on playing before we fired it back up is tactical ancient combat is not super interesting. Um, especially SPQR because usually you're on this giant plane and there's no meaningful terrain. At least that's the scenario we've been playing. I'd, I'd like to explore this more and I will. Uh, we're scheduled to play more. And then after a few plays, I think this is a game that you have to spend time with. And just because I think my problem with this game is I got lost in the, or no, I didn't get lost. I was lost in the weeds in the sense that I dedicated so much time to the first 15 pages of the rules that by the time I got to the back half, I was just kind of burnt out on reading the rules. I was like, okay, I'll see how comment you know plays out as we play, and I'll refresh myself. Well, the first 15 pages of rules aren't that important, but they have the most confusing kind of aspects. But the meat of the game is in the back half of the rulebook. So I spent all this time dead learning the first half, and as the Carthaginian player... Most of those rules didn't apply. Like, there's special rules with how the Romans can activate leaders and what units those leaders can activate. And it's not super clear, especially if you don't have an understanding of Roman military titles. So I, I, I'm going to go back to the rules and really focus on the back half and, and get ready for a second play. But SPQR, it's... The game itself is really the new deluxe edition is is fantastic. I would really love it if someone, because I have no understanding of Vassal, would go in and and improve and fix the old deluxe module. I think there's a new one, but the graphics are kind of poo poo, and it's it's not a good module to work out of. All right, let's talk about great campaigns of the American Civil War. Oh man, this system is. This thing is going to press to the top of the Every War Game Ever list quick. All these titles. The Great Campaign System is... Man, I love the decisions in that game. First off, the the flow. So we're going to talk about OCS. That's kind of the, the game I'll, we're going to talk about Beyond the Rhine. Which that's where I'm going to dedicate you know more detail. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on... Uh, great campaigns we've been playing a, a module or a scenario out of the roads to Gettysburg 2 box which is actually kind of three games in one so there's a ton of game packed in that box and we're just doing a standard uh, standard scenario so none of the advanced rules I was going to say one of my complaints with OCS was okay well now if, as my opponent takes their turn I just sit back as they move and they move their whole army and that may take them two and a half, three hours or longer, you know, depending on the game. If you're dealing with a game with a lot of counters, that's so far, that's not unheard of to me. That's what I've seen happen. With great campaigns, the, the game flows a little bit better, almost like BCS. If you remember on the Battalion Combat series when we talked about that, it, it kind of goes back and forth. Um, with great campaigns, you roll a die and... Uh, whoever wins the die roll gets to activate, but they may not want to activate. They may want to see how their opponent moves. So there's the game flows a little bit better. There's not as long a stretch, or there's not a there could be a long stretch. Um, you know, if your opponent wins all the rolls, but it goes back and forth much nicer. It, it flows back and forth a lot quicker than OCS. 
So that's something I'm, I really like about the game. I like the tactical decisions I'm making. So we're doing Antietam in our Road to Gettysburg scenario. And the tactical, so I'm playing the Confederates. So the decisions I'm making, you know, where to draw my lines, where to move my armies, what terrain to use to my advantage. I love all of that. And I think that system from what I've seen so far captures all of that really well. Also, it how you activate your generals is basically they get more and more tired. And so if I just push them one more time, but that may result in fatigue it may result in disorganization, which basically reduces your combat strength temporarily. It may result in losses. And so you're balancing, do I just do I activate them one more time to try to push them into that ideal position or, or rush reinforcements up there as soon as possible? All of that. And, you know, armies get in the way. So, like, the Union player has to deal with, well, he's got this superior force that's in a lot better shape than the Confederates at this point. And he's got to deal with the fact that, you know, some ding-dong generals clogging up the whole road um, before, you know, the next core can move up. And so the decisions are are really interesting. And the great thing about this game is the basic rules are not that hard. I think they're pretty easy to get through, especially if... So I've, this is my second game of this. I, I'm playing with Rex. That's in Teenum game. And then... A guy named Trip taught me a couple months ago. He kind of introduced me to the system for my first play. Where was I going with that? Oh yeah, the rules. The rules really aren't that bad. And man, once you, once you got it's it's good. I think this is a system I'm going to have a lot of fun with. Uh, and what's nice to me, I think you know, I keep talking about line of battle as this game that I'll play someday. Maybe after next WarCon, I can sit down and, and focus on Line of Battle. I think there's a spot in the collection for both because Great Campaigns is, you know, several levels back. You know, for example, I've got one counter for my claws, and he's got some strength points under him. Whereas I think in Line of Battle, that may be several counters, and so you're you're really zoomed out. And it's this uh, movement of cores and, I guess, divisions. So I think there's a spot in the collection for both, just because of the level of scale of the great campaigns. I'm really looking forward to playing playing this system more. I I think it's going to be, at the end of the day, once I I want to see some campaign games play out, I want to play some other scenarios, all that stuff. I think at the end of the day that great campaigns of the American Civil War will rank as one of my favorite systems I've ever played. Um, okay. I apologize. I'm dealing with allergy season now. So if I'm, you know, stuffy and sniffling and all that crap, it's, it's allergies, but let's talk about beyond the Rhine. So, like I said, I spent the better part of four days playing this game. Um, I want to say we got through five turns, of, of the grand campaign. And I, I know that's nuts. That sounds nuts. At least in my mind, it sounds nuts, but it was every moment. It was, was enjoyable. So beyond the Rhine is relatively new. It is, it's the 14th entry in the operational combat series, which is a series of games from multi-man publishing. If you're completely unfamiliar with them, 
I'll kind of talk about that. The series was designed by Dean Essig, and Dean Essig and I, I should have done my homework. He was the designer with another gentleman on Beyond the Rhine here. And Beyond the Rhine is covering uh, Western West Front Europe during September 44 forward. So what is the Operational Combat series? Operational Combat series is supposed to be, it's supposed to, like, the tagline is, you know, capturing the historical feel, but, you know, still remaining simple. Uh, OCS, Operational Combat series. And I've mentioned this before is daunting at first, but once you start to get through those rules and see those rules play out, it's pretty simple. Uh, I wouldn't say simple. It just, it works. And I think the advantage is that they're on version 4.3 of the rules. So remember going back to the BCS conversation, my biggest complaint of that series is the rule book. Whereas I compared it to OCS where that rulebook is super digestible, the advantage is they're on version four. Um, so you've had four versions of this rulebook to, to make it work, and it works really well, and it's written really well. So if you're at all intimidated by OCS, do not be. There are tons of great games that you could get to try out the series. Reluctant Enemies, that's the game they designed for new players to OCS which is free free French versus uh, Vichy French, Vichy French, uh, kind of like in Palestine and uh, over in that area. And which I've just fired a game up of, and we're going to switch to live play because I'm terrible at playing by email. I just, I lose interest and I, it's not as fun to me. So I asked my opponent, Zach, he's a local buddy here, if we could switch that to live because I just, play by email is not my thing. Anyway, so I've got a game of that firing up. I learned with Tunisia 2, or, you know, I got to see a game turn play out with Tunisia 2. I have not played Sicily, but from what I've heard, Sicily is actually a great one to go with. It's got some landing rules, but you can you can skip those landing rules. So I had assumed that Sicily wouldn't be the good one, but the good one to start with. But from what I've heard, Sicily 2 is actually a pretty good one to start with. Uh, so there's all these topics, and I think really what... I would recommend is don't don't start with a monster, but find a topic that interests you. So if Korean War interests you, start with Korea. Why not? I mean, you may have some more work cut out for you, but they all work. I mean, they all they all use the same rule set, so it really wouldn't be that much different, in my opinion, if you learn with Korea or if you learn with well, shit. Even you know, even Beyond the Rhine has a one map scenario you could play with. Um, but I would I would maybe go with the smaller one just because of the the counter density, because you have thousands of of counters and beyond the Rhine to to worry about, not necessarily in play, just in your box. So yeah, just pick a pick a topic that interests you and learn the learn that system. So I've talked about Korea before, and I I know I've talked about Blitzkrieg Legend, because um, we were playing that. I would not start with Blitzkrieg Legend just because it's so dense. There are so many counters on that map to start. Okay, but let's let's just kind of talk about what I thought I would do is just run through a brief rules rundown just to kind of see how the game turns flow and just kind of talk about, in my opinion, what the point of everything is. And this will be broad, and I'm going to do my best to keep this in order 
I'm not going to go through each little aspect of each game turn, but basically you start out your turn and you roll for supplies and reinforcements and you bring your supplies on the map. Just about everything you do in this game requires supply. Um, so if you're, if you're going to activate mechanized or armored units, you got to fuel them up. And that is not abstracted in this game. You have actual fuel markers that you have to spend. And there's more efficient ways to use fuel. You know, you can you can fuel up all the independents. So if they don't belong to a, um, a specific division, you could say, all right, everyone who doesn't belong to a specific division, here's your fuel for the turn. You're good to go. And you actually pay supply points for that. Now you have, like, infantry, which may have leg movement. You don't have to provide them with fuel. You will also need fuel for attacks, defense, and artillery bombardments. So, part of this game, you bring on your supplies, bring on reinforcements, and you bring on your replacements, and then you go towards your movement phase. And part of the game is actually moving those supply points up, whether it's rail or air or sea or trucks or donkeys or wagons, you actually move them up. Um, to get them to points where you can use them. Supply throwing and you know tracing back to supply is a big aspect of this game. So <clears throat> I'm not going to go too much into detail, but essentially your units need to be within range of either a supply dump, so supplies on the ground, or an HQ unit, which is capable of picking up the supply and throwing it forward, however many hexes, towards that unit. And they'll use that to, to spin down what they do. So as you move, you're moving up your supply lines, but you're also, of course, moving up uh, infantry and armored and artillery. As you move up, you, you may conduct some overruns, which is combat carried out during your movement phase. You can do some air barrages during your movement phase, and you can put units in reserve, um, which is a great way to stretch extra movement out of your units in OCS, which is just something you'll learn as you play. Because essentially you can move a quarter movement and then go into reserve. Or, uh, yeah. You're doing all that during your movement phase. You're moving around. It's your typical movement points compared against the train costs, all that stuff. And then you go into uh, your bombardment phase. So other air attacks, artillery bombardment, and the interesting thing about artillery is it's super expensive. A really productive artillery result may cost a full supply point to fuel up that artillery. So it's just something you have to weigh. And then you go into your combat phase and you have, you can pull off, you'll resolve combat. Your, your, uh, your opponent may be able to react. You'll, after your movement phase, you'll check supply. So there's, not only is there supply points that you have to use and spend to fuel and pay for attacks and defense, you also need to remain within what's called trace supply. Basically, you have to remain within certain types of hexes, however far away um, from like towns and, and HQs and, and, and things like that. There's actually two types of supply going on. You run through all of that, um, and then you... After you've attacked and after your opponent responded and you've you checked supply before all that stuff, then you can activate your reserves. So you can then you can capitalize on the holes that you've punched in the line based off your attacks. 
or you can, you know, cut off enemy troops using your reserves. I mean, you can do during your reserve phase, you, you move as normal and you can, you can do an attack after your, with your reserves, all that stuff. That's, that's how the game flows. And then you just go back and forth and, um, you know, each turn more and more reinforcements are rolling up on the map and you can move them with, you know, strategic movements, get extra distance, conduct airdrops, which require like a plan, a full turn of planning in advance. It may be different based off each game. That's basically how a game flows. So you roll on your supply reinforcements, replacements, you conduct your movement, you check your supply, your opponent reacts, you conduct your, um, you conduct your combat, and then you go to the reserve phase or the exploit phase where you may have basically, if your attack was successful enough, you may have been able to like exploit that success and get a little advantage and then you can move your reserves and then you clean up and then it's your opponent's turn and they go through the exact same thing and you just keep doing that for however many turns until you uh the game ends okay that is the basics a very broad rundown of an operational combat series turn okay so how does this all come together and you know what's the point what are what are you trying to accomplish all of this comes together to basically maximize your combat effectiveness. So your artillery and air barrage, you know, your bombing runs are all there, I think, to make sure your attacks are effective as possible. But you want to be selective with how you use those resources. So remember, artillery is super expensive. So you don't you don't, you know, run artillery bombardments on every single combat you're you're conducting because you're just going to run out of supply because you're constantly, um, like in our Beyond the Rhine game, the U.S. is actually really tight on supply, and I I felt like the Germans all game had an abundance of supply. Being selective in my attacks because I was limited on supply, and I probably would have been more selective if we weren't if we knew that we weren't limited on time. So if we were playing this on Vassal and I knew that we would play this game to the end, I would have been a lot more selective because everything is spending down that supply. And as the U.S., if if my whole right wing is only getting two supply for that turn, well, I need to use that supply to fuel up trucks and armored and pay for attacks or pay for defense, all of those things. And so what I think a good player, which is not me, I have so much to learn in the system still would do is use their supply and use the resources available to them to make their attacks as successful as possible. Or if you're in using beyond the Rhine as the example, if you're the German player using your reserves and resources to be able to react in a way that disrupts the attack. So, one thing, the most common result in artillery other than miss is you make the unit disorganized. Uh, disorganized has all kinds of effects. It makes them less combat effective. It also, and this is important, it removes a reserve marker. Um, and so if they have a stack in reserve and you think they're going to follow up and attack with that reserve and push through and break through the line, well, you probably want to bomb the crap out of that reserve marker 
the units under that reserve marker to try to you know disrupt things take that advantage away from them and so i think identifying where to use those resources and how to use those resources is the brilliant is a brilliant aspect of this game and i think that's what good players do i think they identify okay i'm gonna pull up this supply and then because and i'm gonna break through here and uh, i'm gonna use these resources in an effective way to make sure this attack is as successful as possible now there's some other things going on and cool shit you can do you can completely cut off your um your opponent which i tried to do a lot on the so I basically had the center of the Allied forces in the right wing. My ally, Paul, like I said, he took the Brits and some of the U.S., and he took the left wing. And what I tried to do is, because the Germans have some pretty solid troops left. They don't have a ton of great troops left at this point, but they have some solid ones left. And you can't always get, you know, the most favorable odds and, you know, terrain comes into play, all of the, all of those things, you know, attacking across rivers, attacking into cities, all of that stuff is factored into combat. Well, what my goal so often was, is maneuvering troops to cut off their supply because supply is carried out by truck movement and the rules for zones of control and how they impact truck movement are crucial for OCS. Um, because armored and leg movement really aren't affected by zones of control, but truck movement is. And so if you can, if you can cut off their supply that forces them to react and, you know, keep falling back or, or they're going to risk losing that troop without ever really engaging in combat. Um, and so I think OCS allows you to identify those weak points in the enemy line or in their positioning and allows you to at least attempt to capitalize on those things. And that's what it just works so well. And I think it helps that it's usually a great topic, you know, reluctant enemies isn't the most interesting to me thing to me. And it's just probably cause it's just something I'm not familiar with, but like the Korean war one, I've only, we've only played four or five turns so far, but man, I cannot wait to get some more of that. Um, just because that's a topic I want to explore. And, you know, the fact that here's a game that captures the whole war at this level, it just works. And it's interesting. Um, I'm trying to think of other things to say about the system. Obviously, it's a well-regarded system. I don't, I'm sure, I mean, nothing's for everyone. And it's not perfect. You know, there's some critiques about, well, artillery is way too expensive to pay for. Um, and that should be fixed. Someone was telling me at Donkey Kong that they have some new rules in Smolensk, which is the newest, that's the 17th entry into the OCS series. They have specific artillery supply now, which makes artillery not as expensive. I have not read the rules on that yet. Um, it'd be something interesting to look into. But let's talk about Beyond the Rhine. So we did the full grand campaign, which is four very large maps. And... Uh, yeah, it starts September 44 and goes through the end of the war. Uh, and it was fantastic. Some things that Beyond the Rhine does different than other OCS games is it has some specific rules that I really enjoyed. So, And I will say, if if the four map 
sounds too much. There's three. There's actually three four-map scenarios in this game. If that sounds like too much, this has several other uh, scenarios to play out. It even has a one-map scenario. Um, or, I mean, there's some two maps and, and all that stuff. So things that Beyond the Rhine does really well is... Okay, so compare this to Blitzkrieg Legend, which I talked about you know, a few months ago. Blitzkrieg Legend is... I mean, that's the German offensive into France in 41. I don't know. could be 41. I should know as I'm listening to this book. I've already covered that. Um, that game is so dense in counters. Every, so much stuff starts on the map for both sides. It just takes so long to get through a turn. Beyond the Rhine really isn't that dense. Now, the German players might have told you otherwise. I mean, they still had a lot to manage. But as a U.S. player, I really didn't feel like I had all of that much to deal with. And it helps that we had four players. But I think just comparing it to Blitzkrieg Legend, it was, I'm just going to say, like roughly half the counters on the board to start the game. Uh, which was nice. It makes it a lot more manageable. I think counter density is a critique of, of the system. I think it, it becomes a lot to manage. And so even though we're doing this monster campaign, I never felt like overburdened at any point in time. Like I said, the German players may have felt different, but they didn't mention that. Okay, some other things that, that Beyond the Rhine does really well is it's got a random events table. Uh, and it's, those random events were a lot of fun. We only got to see five or six of them. So you roll each turn for a random event. It's never anything, or we didn't see anything too crucial it's more flavorful and it may just you know kind of disrupt your plans a little bit for one turn but you're playing a 70 turn game here so and they swing each way you know maybe things like uh u.s planes have to target you know uh german artillery um or v rocket sites for a turn so the u.s player has to allocate however many planes that are tied up doing that that they can't use this game turn it's just stuff like that, and I don't know if that exists in other OCS titles. Beyond the Rhine was the first time I saw it play out, and there are tons of options. So the German player also has the ability to declare uh, a Wachtum Rhine counteroffensive, and basically it's this off-map buildup for the German players of troops that as soon as conditions permit, and we didn't get there, I assume it's pretty late in in the game, basically the Germans can go on the counteroffensive and they they have this off-map buildup of troops and they can launch their own counteroffensive. And so what that means is the German player in this game isn't constantly backpedaling, which that can be a trap. Um, I don't... We packed up our Blitzkrieg Legend game um, before it came, came to an end, but I don't know how Blitzkrieg Legend addresses that and how other OCS games address that but, you know, the Germans, for the large part and beyond the Rhine, are basically trying to hold out as long as possible before they fall back to the West Wall, where, you know, they'll hold out as long as possible there. Um, and so what Wachtum Rhine, that's cool because that at least gives them a chance to go on the offensive, you know, to, to take a break from constantly playing defense. Um, so that's nice. There's also uh, the Allied can drop troops. Um, like 20 hexes beyond their front lines. And it's not just a thing. The German player 
has built-in rules for troops that are able to kind of come onto the map as a response to those airdrops. I, I thought that was a, a neat rule. I think the German tactical decisions are really interesting in this game. So even though, even without Wachtem Rhein, or without Wachtem Rhein, they're, they're backpedaling. Even in that role, I think where they draw their lines is interesting. Um, you know, cause there's canals and rivers and forests and mountains. And I think the German player, and that's like really in the large part, just my, uh, right and center of the map. If, if you go to the, the North end of the map, there's, you know, there's no forest, um, but there's a shit ton more waterways and, and, and stuff like that. And so the German player has all these tactical decisions of, all right, well, how long do we try to hold before we fall back to the Rhine? And, you know, where do we blow bridges? And they have that option. They can, they can blow bridges. And so there's these nice river rules in effect of, all right, get back to the Rhine, blow the bridges. So then the U S player either needs to repair the bridges or they need to bring these pontoon troops forward. It's got a lot of really enjoyable rules, game specific rules at play here. So I think it's a fantastic entry into the OCS series. I want to, I want to play this again. I've played, what is that? That's a 14th of the game of the grand campaign. The problem is, is I don't play by email. And so finding a live opponent opponent for uh, 70 turns of OCS is is quite the ask. Because, I, and this gets to two of the downsides from OCS. For me, my two biggest complaints are the downtime between opponent turns and the amount of pieces. Let's say this is a very counter-dense game. Um, I think Beyond the Rhine would be a lot to manage on you know, one player each side as the game progresses. It doesn't start as dense, but reinforcements start coming on the board, you know, for the U.S. every turn, more and more troops, more and more stuff to manage, and it's not too bad once you know what you're doing, which is why I think some of the smaller scenarios and smaller games are are better for a, a new player, um, just just so you can manage it easier. The biggest is the biggest point is the downtime during movement turns. Especially if, you know, I, I play this to have fun, but I, I suspect if you had a really s- serious opponent um, that all they cared about winning, they could they could analyze the crap out of this game. And um, and we didn't really run into that. But even then, even with knowing that we were on a four-day schedule and we're making attacks and advancing in spots that we normally wouldn't have, uh, it wasn't uncommon for a move turn to take, you know, two hours or something like that. And that's just, that's just the way it is. I think, so something like BCS addresses that better, just with the back and forth, basically activating by divisions or, or formations. Um, but that's just the, the nature, nature of the beast. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about OCS or Beyond the Rhine? The system as a whole is fantastic. Uh, I really am excited to see how Korea plays out. Um, we're still so early war. So there, you know, the South Koreans are backpedaling basically until the U S come in and the Koreans are, the North Koreans are trying to be aggressive as possible. And then they'll backpedal like crazy. And then the Chinese will come on. And so I think that will have a nice back and forth where each side will play the, uh, the defense. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's very well designed. 
It's very approachable. And I think if you're still listening at this point and you haven't played OCS, that you owe it to yourself to go give it a try. If if it covers a topic that you're interested in, go for it. I mean, you have you have North Africa, you have West Front, you have East Front. There's tons of East Front titles. Uh, you have Korean War. There's Sicily. Um, Sicily is one of my favorite engagements that I would like to play more that I don't play enough of. But for whatever reason, I really enjoy Sicily games. Uh, so there's lots of stuff out there. I, I highly encourage you to go check it out. Okay, so we're a little late on time. Um, but like I said, there's a lot to catch up on. I do want to plug this somewhere on the every war game ever list. So if this is your first episode, I apologize because um, this one's run long. But we do this gimmicky ass thing where I take every single war game that I've reviewed or talked about in detail and I rank them and compare them against themselves. And the idea is that at some point, whenever we'll rank every single war game ever in a completely objective. And by that, I mean completely subjective because it's completely my taste and my opinion um, list. And if you ever want to submit your own game that you think I should rank and compare on this list, shoot me an email. I'll be happy to do that. Uh, so that's what we're going to do now. We need to plug Beyond the Rhine somewhere on this list. And we don't need to run through the games that are on the list because I think this is going to end up somewhere near the top. It blows everything at the bottom out of the water. So Beyond the Rhine's a great entry in those. Yes, I, th- I want to play it some more. Um, but, you know, four days of playing it is uh, gives me a pretty good feel for it. I think it may be one of my favorite entries. Definitely one of my favorite entries I've played so far. So the question is, where does it end up? It's not my favorite game of all time. That's still U.S. Civil War. So then I'm thinking, all right, Battle Hymn, Normandy 44, the next two in line. Um, I'm not going to go back and forth and and you know, debate and weigh this. I've talked about those games in detail. I think Beyond the Rhine is a better designed game than Battle Hymn and Normandy 44. I may play Normandy 44 and Battle Hymn a lot more just by the nature, the size of Beyond the Rhine. You know, those games play so much faster, and they're so much easier to, to teach. Well, Normandy 44 isn't that much easier to teach, but Battle Hymn sure is. So for me, Beyond the Rhine comes in at number two. Uh, so the number two game of all time would be Beyond the Rhine from Multimedia Publishing. The, what did I say, 14th entry in their operational combat series. Okay, that is it. Another episode in the books. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or if you want to suggest a game for the Every War Game Ever list, feel free to shoot me an email. It's historytablepodcast at gmail.com. Again, it's historytablepodcast at gmail.com. On Twitter as well, it's at historytablepod, at historytablepod. And again, if you're in the Kansas City area and it's uh, you know within driving distance, come join us on June 1st. We'll be there all day. Um, tell us what games you want to play and uh, we'll try to accommodate everyone and we'll play games all day on June 1st. Okay, we'll talk to you next time.